You ever seen an ugly baby before? I know. Some people are saying, no, every baby is beautiful, and they're a precious gift from God, and you're half right. Every baby is a precious gift from God, but sometimes babies just look a little sketchy, and it's not the baby's fault, okay? There's nothing the baby did, and I can say that as the father of kind of a sketchy-looking baby, to be honest. My first son, when he was born, he came out, he, he was just gorgeous, just gorgeous kid, great complexion. His head was perfectly shaped. You know, sometimes babies get that kind of long head, but like he had a great shape, you know, and like no milia, no scratches from like great complexion. Even the nurses were just like, oh, he's so precious. And they were right. He was just this perfect little baby angel. So when my second son was born, like I had really high hopes, really high hopes. But Ben came out a lot faster and a lot harder than his brother. Uh, so he went on a ride, like his nose was smashed. His face was all bruised and purple, and like he was a nine-pound baby, so he was—he was, had some weight on him. He had those baby cheeks, and oh, those baby cheeks are cute, right? Except his were all like smashed up into his face. And when I saw him come out, like my first thought was, "This is amazing! I'm gonna love this kid forever." And my second thought was, "I think we just had an ugly baby." But you know what? A couple days went by, he decompressed, and he got real cute. So. But I'm just saying, okay, so this is a good example. Some of you are thinking, who is this guy, right? Not everything that pops in my head is wholesome. There's this little voice in there, and honestly, he can be kind of judgy sometimes, just being real. And you, I think, can resonate with that because we've all got this little judgy voice that pops in there sometimes. Not everything we think is always real nice. Like maybe you see somebody, and they're wearing an outfit that's just not doing them any favors, and that judgy voice is just like, of all the choices, that was the wrong choice, right? You've been there. Or maybe, like, you're seeing somebody who's pumping gas into their car while they're smoking a cigarette, and that little voice is like, they are not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? Or maybe you're having a conversation with somebody about, like, what was on the news or current events, and they share an opinion, and that little judgy voice chimes in and goes, oh, I didn't know you were one of those people right? Like, we all have this judgy, you're laughing because it's uncomfortable and true. We all have this little judgy voice in our head at times. But as Christians, as believers, sometimes that judgy voice can kind of take on a bit of a religious flavor at times. And sometimes when it comes to things like morality or biblical teaching or doctrine, that comes like part of the judgy voice. And, and sometimes we can kind of get this reputation of maybe being judgmental because of our faith. In fact, Christianity has this reputation in pop culture as being kind of a judgmental religion. And I got to ask, is that true? If it is, to what extent? And here's the unpopular question that I seldom hear people actually ask. Is judgment an entirely bad thing? Or does it have its place? All of these are questions that we're going to grapple with and wrestle with as we start this new series this morning called Judge Not. Now, given the title you probably pieced together, we're going to grow in graciousness and in humility and in a posture that resists being judgmental. That doesn't do away with the question about judgment and is it an entirely bad thing or does it have its place? That, that's the question that we're going to start to address this morning as we open up this series in the book of Romans chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open those up, Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. 
If you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find sermon notes along with our passage, broken down, ready for you to take notes on and engage with, get the most out of our time together. Now, our passage this morning is going to raise to the, the forefront of our consciousness or comprehension two truths. The first one is one that we really want to suppress and that not very many people are comfortable with, so we want to deny. The second one is so obvious in our experience that it's impossible to deny, and they both have a little bit to do with each other. So this first, first truth that our passage draws to our attention is this reality that there is a judge. Just plain and simple. There is a judge, and sometimes that makes people uncomfortable because if there's a judge... There's judgment, and we'll talk about maybe why that makes us a little uncomfortable in a minute, but let's just start off with this passage and see what it has to say here. So, chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So, a lot of times when we read this, maybe we don't get past those first four words, the wrath of God. That's not a phrase we use a whole lot because it's, well, let's be honest, it makes us a little nervous, right? It's frightening. Sometimes it might show up in like two songs that I can think of in, in my knowledge, like hymns and stuff. But outside of that, we don't talk about it because wrath, well, that's a scary word. And a lot of times we kind of get uncomfortable with the idea that God might have wrath, partially because of our experience of people and their wrath today. As we experience it, wrath is not a positive thing. Our culture sees it as a vice. It is an act of revenge or it's an act of retribution because you hurt me or you did me dirty in some way, and so I'm going to get back at you and I'm going to show you my wrath. And that's not how reasonable, rational, mature people handle conflict. So our, our culture generally looks at wrath as a negative thing. This is a vice. So we make it maybe a little nervous whenever we hear that God has wrath. But we need to understand that the wrath of God, or just even the more general concept, divine wrath, is a lot different from wrath as you and I know it and experience it. If we were to start in the Old Testament... Anytime you get a concept like this in the Bible, you want to see how it's developed over like thousands of years of reflection and revelation. So you start in the Old Testament, and you trace this idea of wrath through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, and what you come to find out is that it's not really God getting his feelings hurt and acting out against people, but rather the wrath of God or divine wrath in its most basic form is an act of judgment against evil. And like I said, we could trace that image and develop it. We don't have time for that this morning. But there's one passage I think does a really good job of illustrating this relationship of wrath and judgment. It's in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And it's this image of Jesus. And he's just like draped in divine imagery from head to toe. So he's obviously an agent of God's will in this passage. And he's riding out on a white horse in front of the armies of heaven. And he's about to confront Satan and, and those who have align themselves with evil in this world. And there's this really unique phrase It says that he, he strikes them down with the sword coming out of his mouth, which can mean one of two things. Either Jesus had this secret sword-swallowing skill that we didn't read about in the Gospels, or this is, this is a metaphor. And the sword is usually a metaphor for judgment of some kind. And so with his 
His words, he's judging and striking down evil. So you can see where judgment is in, in view here. And that's followed in verse 15 by this phrase. It says, He, meaning Jesus, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You ever seen I Love Lucy? There's like this iconic episode where Lucy's, she's in the, the wine press and she's just like squishing the grapes, right? Am I the only one that watches Nick at Night? You've seen, seen some? Yeah, okay, so we, we're familiar, right? Well, I want you to imagine that, except instead of Lucy, it's Jesus. Instead of grapes, it's those that have aligned themselves with evil and destruction of God's creation. And that ain't grape juice, by the way. That's the image here. It's a pretty intense image. It is judgment, and it is something that is called the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. This isn't just God getting grumpy because he got his feelings hurt and acting out. This is the function of a judge to witness evil, to call it as such, and to judge it. That's wrath. There is a judge. And we see really quickly after this introduction that this judge, his jurisdiction is, is not limited just to those who believe in him, or to those that would call themselves Christians. It says that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being revealed from heaven. And we're not real interested in the geography of where God's located. Really, that's shorthand comment on the authority of God. You might think of the way that we talk about the Oval Office. You know, on news you hear, well, word out of the Oval Office is, or today the Oval Office released a statement, we don't care about the shape of the president's office or the architecture thereof. We're talking about the authority of that office. That's what we mean when we say the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Heaven is a little unique in its authority, though. Because if you think about the Oval Office, they are authoritative within the borders of the United States of America. But they're not authoritative in, like, Russia. That's the Kremlin's job. And likewise, the Kremlin is authoritative within the borders of Russia, but they have no jurisdiction in, like, the U.K., these are sovereign, independent nations. Heaven is unique in that it is over all the nations of the earth. If you live in God's creation, which is to say you exist, you fall under the jurisdiction of heavenly authority. This is not somebody who is limited in his ability to judge. He is judge, and he is judge absolutely. You might think about it like this. When I was in college, I was delivering pizza in Joplin, Missouri, I grew up in Illinois. I learned how to drive in Illinois. And so when I got to Joplin, I assumed all the rules and the laws were the same. Spoiler, they were not. Uh, I had to turn left against traffic in a busy four-lane road. So I pulled into the shared turn lane, safely merged, and went on my way and promptly got a $200 ticket because apparently that is a city ordinance. And I tried to not argue, but try to explain, I'm not from here, I'm from Illinois, check my place, check my license, I just go to school here. He's like, well, that's nice, here's your ticket. It doesn't matter, because if you're within the confines of that jurisdiction, you are accountable to the laws of that jurisdiction. There is a judge, and his jurisdiction is all of reality. If you exist in his creation... He is judge absolutely. And that can be kind of a scary thought, too, for a number of different reasons. Sometimes people get a little, a little worried just because it's, it's authority and it makes them nervous. I mean, if you've ever stood in a courtroom, even if you're innocent, it's a little intimidating. Sometimes people get a little nervous because, well, they know that there's guilt in their life. 
And if they're going to stand before a judge, it's usually not a good sign. There could be a reason that is entirely different. There's numerous reasons why, as verse 18 puts it, we suppress the truth through our wickedness, this truth that there is a judge. And he judges absolutely. Our culture wants to pretend that morality is relative, that truth is not absolute. That so long as I'm not hurting anybody, you know, I can pretty much live my life how I want and everything's fine. It doesn't change the fact that there is a judge. And his judgments are absolute. And all of this hesitation, by the way, stems from this second truth that our passage brings to the forefront. The one that really nobody can deny. Sin exists. And that may seem like a simple statement, but our culture almost bends over backwards trying to explain away the existence of sin when all we have to do is turn on the news or look out our window or look at the lives of our hurting friends and family to know that something in this world is not as it ought to be. There's no way this could be plan A. There's too much hurt. There's too much brokenness. Sin exists. And our passage starts to flesh out how this came about and the impact that sin has and why sin deserves to be judged by this judge. Will you look at verse 20 with me? It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, meaning his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. This is a really dense portion of Scripture, and I wish we could just, like, take our time and unpack every little phrase, but we'd be here a long time, and we'd also talk about so many unrelated topics. So we're going to stay focused and just summarize what we just read. Basically, the short of it is this. Ever since the beginning of creation, God has been pointing to His creation and saying, here, you can kind of see me, you can see evidence of me, you can see what I'm like in the world that I've made. And this is something that most people experience pretty easily and personally. I mean, if you've ever went camping and looked up at the stars at night, or if you've been to the Grand Canyon or some national or natural you know, phenomenon, natural monument, and looked at this vast creation, or if you've ever like held a baby, even an ugly baby, you've probably asked this question like, where did it all come from? Where did this come from? We've all asked that question. And here's the really interesting part. It doesn't matter what pathway you take in trying to answer that question. You're eventually going to arrive at a very similar conclusion. If you take the biblical answer and you read through Scripture, or if you take a purely naturalistic, secular explanation of creation, or if you take some other religious road entirely, all of them are going to lead you to the same general conclusion that something is responsible for this. There is an uncaused cause, meaning something out there is eternal. If you're secular or naturalistic, you would say that matter is eternal. If you are of a religious bent, you'd say that there is a divine force or presence that is eternal. But here's where it gets a little more interesting. God has put us together in such a way that when we take note of our own being and we take note of our community and the best parts of us, and we start to take a look at the world around us and the balance within it and the beauty and the intricacy of it, we start to come to the conclusion that this something probably isn't a thing, it's a person. There seems to be intention here in creation. It's not a a saving knowledge, it's not a full knowledge of God, but it is a knowledge that there is a creator out there. God has put hints and evidences within his creation to say to humanity, hey, I'm out here, I exist, 
I made you. Here's the basic direction in which you ought to live your lives. There's a knowledge of God that mankind has always had. That's why the history of, of mankind is also a study in the history of religion. You really can't study anthropology without also studying ancient theologies because people have always recognized there's someone out there. But having that knowledge is one thing, and using it appropriately is something entirely different. That's where things start to go wrong. If you look at verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's a deception that's taking place here over mankind. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. There's an exchange taking place in which we have this knowledge there's somebody out there, there's a creator out there. But instead of worshiping creator, mankind said, let's worship created things instead. And our passage describes it in terms of literal idolatry, worshiping images that look like people and animals and so on. But we still practice this kind of worship and devotion to created things in our own day and age. We don't bow down to a statue, but maybe we bow down to a dollar bill and we devote our best times and our energies to it. Or maybe we devote ourselves to the philosophies of a, a, a philosopher or an academic or a politician we devote ourselves to an ideology that is supposed to give order, meaning, and significance to life. We still bow down to created things all the time and still turn everything upside down. And here's what tends to happen, what our passage describes when it talks about their hearts were darkened, when it talks about their foolish understanding. When we flip that dynamic upside down, when we worship created instead of creator, it flips our entire understanding of reality upside down. And the way that we look at the world gets flipped upside down. And the way we understand ourselves and one another starts to get flipped upside down. And when we have this kind of backwards way of understanding existence, we also develop these backward upside down ways of living and acting and relating with one another. What we call sin. And it's this downward spiral into darkness and descent where we just plunge deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole until we hurt so much we can't stand it. It's madness. I mean, just by kind of a comical example of, of what we're talking about, what our passage describes, let's pretend you own a professional football team. Brand new team. You're an expansion team. You are the owner, the general manager, and the head coach. You have total authority. And this opportunity is so exciting that Tom Brady himself says, I'm going to come out of retirement, and I want to play for you. Now, love the guy or hate him. You can't deny the numbers. He is one of if not the greatest quarterbacks to play the game. He's great. But instead of accepting and signing the greatest, you say, you know, there's this sixth grader down at the Y that plays flag football on the weekends. He wears a Tom Brady jersey, and I think he's going places. So you say, Tom, thanks, but no thanks. I'm signing Jimmy. So you sign Jimmy from the Y, who's in sixth grade, to be the QB of your professional football team. That's madness, right? That's insane. You had the opportunity to sign the greatest, and you chose an imitation instead. But having chosen that path, you're going to pursue it. And you say, okay, Jimmy's my QB, so i got to build an offense around this kid now. He can only throw the ball about 10 yards at most. So every play in your playbook is designed around his limitations of throwing the ball 10 yards. 
Not a great plan, but okay, we'll go with it. You also start to realize that Jimmy is in sixth grade. He's skinny as a rail, and he's going to break the second a linebacker even looks at him. So you spend all the money you have building the biggest, beefiest offensive line imaginable. They call it the wall. No one has ever seen a group of men so large and tough. But it costs you everything. You don't have any money left to sign like running backs. So you go back to Jimmy and you say, hey, get your friends that you play flag football with. You bring them down. Tell them, I'll pay them and all the Doritos and Mountain Dew they can stomach if they want to be on this team. And they think it's a great deal. So you got Jimmy, the wall, Jimmy's sixth grade buddies, and all the while Tom Brady's still on the phone calling you going, hey, look, I'm still available if you want to sign me. No, 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 Tom, this is good. I really think we got something going here. And you can insist on playing this game in the most deluded way imaginable, destined for terrible failure, a catastrophic laughingstock is what this team is destined for, but you've convinced yourself, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted when I said, let's start this team. Everything gets flipped on its head because we exchange the greatest for an imitation. That's what our passage is describing, this continual descent into delusion and pain because we've chosen to worship the created instead of the creator. And it doesn't just impact us on an individual level. It in impacts the world on a societal level. And Paul describes this as we keep reading in verse 24. He gives us a pretty good example. It says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. It's a really interesting phrase here, God gave them over. You ever stood in a river, you know, like try to hold on to a canoe or a raft or something, the current keeps pulling it, but you just hold on to it? It can be kind of tiring after a while. And you might even be tempted to just let go and let the river wash it away. That's kind of what's being described here when it says God gave them over. Mankind insisted on pursuing this upside-down, backward destruction of sin. They insisted upon worshiping creator or created instead of creator, and God was holding on tight to them. You don't want to do this. Don't do this. Please don't do this. But you can only hold on so long before the insistence brings you to the point where you let go. And he let mankind pursue exactly what they wanted, knowing that they would experience all of the degradation that it had in store for them. And this, by the way, is God's judgment and wrath that we read about earlier. Sometimes we think of divine wrath as God sitting on a cloud with a six-shooter just zapping bad people with lightning guns or lightning bolts. When in reality, God's judgment is just simply saying, okay. Knock yourself out. Drink in all of the sin and the rebellion that you so eagerly clamor for. Experience all of the heartache and the violation that it has in store for you. Paul gives the example here of sexual immorality, how that played out in the ancient Roman world. And I want to point out before we go on, Romans chapter 1 is not a chapter about sex or sexual sin. That's going to be really important to keep in mind for the next few weeks as we continue on in this passage. 
It is an example of what happens when we exchange created for creator. It's this downward spiral of pain. And we've seen it in our own culture, by the way, not even that long ago. This example of sexual impurity and immorality started in the 60s, sexual revolution. It was this push to liberate sex from the puritanical confines of the previous generations that taught, you know, one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant of marriage are free to enjoy and be privileged in this act. No, 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 no. We don't want that. We want it to be free, open, celebrated. That was the 60s. With that push where sex becomes more widely accessible and recognized part of our culture, people began to become more comfortable with it. It's going to become part of our conversation Soon it became part of our advertising. Advertisers realized, wait a minute, people will buy stuff if we use sex to sell. And so they began to use sex with increasing obviousness and increasing overtness to sell products until eventually we got the Hardee's campaign from a few years ago where a hamburger was advertised by a girl in a bikini on a mechanical bull. I don't know what those two things have to do with one another, but that's the ad campaign. And eventually, sex became such an important part of our marketing process and our culture that sex itself became the product. We had the publication of pornographic magazines, which were you know, shunned by broad popular culture for a number of years, but eventually even the shame of those deteriorated. And the publishers of these magazines and the magazines themselves became part of our culture, pop culture. The publishers even became household names in some instances. And then with the advancement of technology, we had this opportunity for this commodity to become even more widely accessible to even more people. And pretty soon, the marketplace was so crowded that innovation became necessary to distinguish competitors from one another, because that's what happens with every product. And the ways you do that is either, one, you flood the market with exposure, and you put so much of it out there that everybody knows your brand, or you got to come up with something unique that nobody's ever seen before. And in the case... And pornography, both happened. The technical revolution allowed for this deluge of adult material to flood every smartphone and laptop and tablet, every social media account with increasingly graphic and violent depictions of what this thing was supposedly supposed to be. And an entire generation of people has been washed up and taken aback and been exposed to this to, to the point that it has contorted their understanding of what sex is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be done and what it's for. And we get to somebody like Billie Eilish, who's a pop singer, she's in her 20s, very talented young woman, love her music or not. She did an interview recently in which she talked about her exposure to pornography at the age of 11 and how she indulged in this because it made her feel like part of the crowd. You know, there was no shame attached to it. It was inclusive. And so she was exposed to things at an age, well, really that nobody should be exposed to. She went on to say later that she had nightmares because of the violent nature of the images that she saw as a child. And it warped her sense of what this was supposed to be to the point that when she was of a dating age, she wasn't saying no to things she should have been saying no to, her words, not mine. And she describes herself today as being really, really angry with herself because it, quote, broke her brain. And it has shaped her to understand herself and the people around her and what this beautiful thing was supposed to be in terms of brokenness and violence and degradation. And she is one face among a sea of faces has been swept up 
and this activity that supposedly nobody was going to get hurt in back in the 60s because it's all about free love and it's all about just loving one another and it's all about just indulging what's good and what feels right. It's not going to hurt anybody except for maybe 40, 50, 60 years later when an entire generation of people is aching inside. This is what sin does. It is a downward spiral that ends in tragedy where everything that God has put before us is turned on its head, where good is called evil, where evil is called good, and it breaks everything it touches. Do you want to know why the world aches the way that it does? It's not because of bad policies or politicians. It's because there is something in our hearts that yearns for that which is unrighteous, Do you want to know why it always seems like there's some new thing chewing people up and spitting them out? It's not because of some troubling books in a library. It's not because of some blog or some podcast. It's because there's something here that insists on perpetuating this broken cycle of lawlessness. It's because sin undeniably exists. That's the second reality that our passage brings to our attention. There is a judge, and he judges absolutely. Sin exists, and it absolutely deserves to be judged for all of the evil and the brokenness and the pain that it is responsible for. But here's the caveat, and it's a really, really big caveat. It's kind of the whole basis for this series. There is a judge. We're not him. We are not on that throne. We do not bang that gavel. That's not our place. Sometimes in our zeal for standing against what is wrong, for standing for what is righteous, and judging sin for the wickedness that it is, sometimes Christians... We're guilty of lumping people in with those judgments. When even God himself is not at that point yet. I want us to look back at verse 18 and look really carefully at the grammar. Because grammar matters. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against... What's God's wrath against? Godlessness and wickedness. Sin. Of people. People are an indirect object there. We're involved in the process. But we are not the direct object of that verb. God's wrath is presently ongoing, or present tense, being revealed against godlessness and wickedness, against sin. You see, even God's not at the point where He's saying, I'm going to condemn and demand people give account today. That day will come. There's a day at the end of all things when all mankind, the living and the dead, stand before Him and we give account. Of our lives. Revelation describes it as two books being opened. One of them is the book of deeds. And we'll stand and give account based on the deeds of our lives. Spoiler, that's not a real promising proposition. But the good news of the gospel is there's this other book. It's called the book of life. It's a name filled with the names of God's people who have said, I am not righteous and I need Jesus to save me. And if your name is in that book, then you stand before the judge, not on your own merit, but on the merit of Christ. That's a far better proposition. 
That day comes. That's not today. Today, God is revealing the wickedness of sin, judging sin for what it is, letting go and allowing mankind to experience the brokenness that it inevitably produces in hopes that our eyes will be opened and we will seek something better in Him, namely the gospel. Sometimes, unfortunately, people have to learn a lesson the hard way. My oldest son, he, uh, he had this bad habit where he would try to shove too much food into his mouth. And we would always tell him, buddy, don't do that. You're going to choke. But he kept doing it. So we would send him to his room or we would take something away or we'd cut his food into annoyingly small pieces. But he just kept shoving too much food in his mouth until eventually one day he put just a little too much food in there. It hit the back of his throat and gagged him and he barfed all over the dinner table. And he was scared, and he was crying, and by the time, you know, we were trying to comfort him, but he still had that puke stuff on his chin, so we were like, mm, you know. But after we got him all cleaned up and settled down, I said, what did you learn? He said, don't put too much food in your mouth. Yeah. Sometimes people learn lessons the hard way. That's what judgment is today. God letting mankind go to experience the wicked fruits of the sin that they desire and experience the pain and hopefully, unfortunately, but hopefully they heard enough that they say there's got to be something more than this. And the good news is there is. There is righteousness and freedom and grace and life and joy in God Almighty. There is something so much better. Even God is not at the point where he is judging people today. He's far more interested in saving them. And you and I are evidence of that. Because we are not here today because we were so smart that we figured the gospel out and said, you know what, based on the power of my knowledge, I'm going to choose Christ. No, he called to us. He sought us. He confronted us with the gospel. And we said yes to an invitation, not to our own knowledge. We don't stand here today because we were just so upright and so good unto ourselves that, that God just, oh, I gotta save that one. I gotta put him on the team. No. We were given an invitation. Though you are unrighteous, come and be made whole. Though you are drenched in sin, let me wash you white as snow. We were given an invitation in the gospel. We didn't earn this, guys. We didn't deserve this. We were given this as a gift. We stand here today because of the grace of God alone. And that's the sort of thing that should humble us. That should bring us to a point where we seek to be gracious to others to the extent that we ourselves have been shown grace. That is not the kind of knowledge that should fill us with arrogance and pride. To look down on a world of people who are still confused and caught in the downward spiral, whose hearts are still darkened and frankly don't know the reality that there is a judge, that there is sin, and there is something so much better in the gospel. We are called to take a posture similar to our own father. Not to condemn, but to bring good news and an invitation of salvation and life. That's our job. The Great Commission, the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus didn't say go into all the world and tell them everything they're doing wrong, that they're all going to hell. He said go into all the world and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go tell them about me. Go tell them this great news of mercy and grace that you have tasted. 
And that's the posture that I hope over the next several weeks you and I will grow in together. A posture of humility and graciousness. I don't want us to be concerned with calling evil what it is. Don't call evil good or good evil because to do that is to leave our world just as backwards and confused as it is now. But in our standing against sin and wickedness, we have to take a very cautious approach not to lump people in with that judgment, but rather to extend grace, to extend compassion, to choose a posture of humility and judge not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. You have shown us your love and your compassion a thousand times. And when we were lost without a shepherd, you called to us and you made us your own. Not because we were worthy, not because we were so precious or special or talented or skilled or good, but because of your love. And we praise you for that kindness that we see in the gospel. May it change our hearts as we look upon a world where sin runs rampant, where people are broken and chewed up and destroyed and degraded. And let us stand against what is wicked and what is evil and what is unrighteous, but let us in doing so show grace and compassion and mercy that others might seek your goodness and know the life that comes through the gospel of Christ. Pray these things in his name.